Because Money was originally recorded as a video podcast, so there may be visuals that don't carry through to this audio-only version. Please visit becausemoney.ca to see the show notes, related links, and more. Is this thing on? Is this... Hello? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Because Money podcast. Sandy's in black and white. She's laughing. Rob is there uh, on his iPhone, and we are joined today by a special guest, Holy Potato. That's uh, right there, and uh, yeah, so uh, John, happy to have you. Thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for inviting me out, Jackson. Yeah, it's uh, it's cool. So um, here's the way that we're going to do. I'm going to do a bit of housekeeping. Uh, because Money Podcast, we're Canadians. We talk about Canadian finance, and uh, yeah, we're happy to be here. If you want to join the conversation, hit us on Twitter, and you use the hashtag, I think they got like a video with Justin Timberlake that was hashtag, because money. And, and you throw that down, and we'll, uh, we'll respond. I'll be the social moderating. I'm going to throw it over to Rob right now. We've got a lot on the, on the docket, as it were, and we're going uh, to have fun. So, Rob, take it away. Well, today we're going to talk, uh, talk about math and, uh, and some, I guess, either some bad math or bad behavior. And so we'll lead into, uh, there was an article floating around last week on CBC that was a, uh, it was a couple out of BC who uh, ended up, they, they had declared bankruptcy previously, and they, had, uh, they ended up with a car loan. I think it was a $21,000 for a $21,000 car at 25% interest and uh, allegedly had uh, some kind of promise that the the loan would uh, the the interest rate on the loan would go down after a year or so and then that didn't happen and so uh, there was a big uproar and uh, I guess it led to a lot of debate about who was at fault here was it the couple who signed on the dotted line, they're responsible for their own decisions here, why are they you know, getting in over their heads with this kind of loan, um, or was it the bank? I mean, why are, you, why are they offering uh, interest rates at 25%? You know, we always hear about how we're in this low interest rate environment. Well, what about people with, um, you know, have declared bankruptcies or have rough uh, credit histories? Uh, what kind of interest rates are they getting? Um, maybe throw it over back to Jackson here and ask, uh, you had some strong feelings about this article, and and uh, did this couple are they did they just get in over their heads here? Well, my my problem is, and I see a lot of this is, uh, you know, having been a mortgage broker for seven years and dealing with people coming in and expecting credit. I just, I I absolutely hate the idea that having credit and getting credit in Canada is a right, and people like I've. I've had a guy come into my office who was laid off from his job, had no money down, and the only the only trade lines he had on his credit bureau were collections. And he was really upset with me that I couldn't arrange financing for him. And it's just this idea that the banks are going to take the banks are out there taking advantage of you. That's what frustrates me. If you sign a loan at TD for 25% to get your car, that's your choice. You made the choice. You're the idiot. Yes, that's way too much interest. But, I mean, these guys, they're just clowns. And I'm going to say that I really don't even like the reporting on this one. This isn't even a story. This is just terrible. And the way the story unfolded, it's kind of like they were robbed, and then but they claimed bankruptcy, and they didn't have anything else. And it just – it was like – no, this is not the bank's fault. And to try and shift blame there, and now the government of Canada is watching. To me, it just seemed like such a gong show. When are we going to start accepting, you know, responsibility for our decisions? They needed a car. They were bankrupt. 
they went out and signed a loan, and then a year later she's crying on camera? Ooh, poor me. I just, I no sympathy. I do not like it at all. Sandy, what yeah. was behind the, or sorry, go ahead, John. I was going to say, another problem with the reporting is that uh, it gives us very little insight as to what actually happened with the story. So they talk about how they went to this car dealer and they would only give them the one car, but they don't say, did you go to another car dealership? What did you look for? Because, you know, if you're going out to a single car dealer and you're taking the one car that they offer you right up front, taking the first interest rate, yeah, you're going to get taken advantage of because that's their first offer. But beyond that, you know, a 25% interest rate is a signal. It's a signal from the bank saying, don't take this loan. Really, really don't take this loan. And when you take it at 25%, it's like Justin says, you know, you're doing it to yourself. Now, is there any responsibility on the lender's behalf to actually say, look, this isn't a good idea? No. That's, no. well. Not on my side. I, I'll, let, <laughs> I'll let John talk, but I, I go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with no. But I don't know. I, I tend to go for like compromises and middle ways a lot. So I'd say for the most part, no. Uh, the bank made them a loan. They made them a loan with an interest rate that they thought gave them a reasonable chance of recovering their money. You know, if they made four loans to people with this risky, then three of them might default, and or sorry, the other way around. One of them might default, three of them might not, and they might make their money back after a number of years. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know. If someone has that bad credit that they went into bankruptcy and they're considering a 25% car loan, uh, it might be like with the casinos where maybe you need to recommend them to a kind of uh, debt counseling or you know, Gamblers Anonymous or the equivalent. Now, Sandy, what about the issue behind the, um, the promise, I guess, that, they were, uh, the, that the interest rate was going to go down? What, I guess what, uh, what caveats can, you, can we learn from uh, something like this? Yeah, you know, I've had conversations like that in my banking past, which were not, you know, oh, definitely we're going to get, you know, bring your interest rate down. But as you're speaking, but I can totally imagine. I was, I was trying to imagine what that conversation might have sounded like, and, and I can, I can, I just can picture it in my mind that the, the um, car salesman or the financing officer or whoever it was that was talking, because I think they didn't directly go to the bank. I'm pretty sure it wasn't, I mean, it's a bank loan, but it was kind of offered through the dealership, right? Yeah, okay. So I can yeah, see that going, article. yeah, so I can see it going, well, you know, I've seen cases where you come back in after a year and you've had really good repayment and we can do a refinance or whatever. I can see it being that kind of conversation, but somebody who's sitting the responsibility is not necessarily that you know the car salesman or the financing agent needs to tell that person, look, you shouldn't take this loan because obviously you're not very good with credit. That's kind of a different story. But the responsibility in that conversation is to make sure that people who are across the desk from you don't understand that what you're saying, you're just kind of talking about some other time it's happened. You have no control over policy. You don't have control over approval ratings or underwriting or any of that kind of stuff. Though, uh, clearly, that couple didn't understand that the person behind the desk had almost no power in that relationship or in that lending decision. So that's what I think. And I'm going to jump in because, yeah, my my role as a mortgage broker is arranging financing. So I act as the middleman. I'm. I understand the role that the same the car guy, the car finance guy would have, and it's tough because people come in and they are absolutely determined to get what they want. I look at my job as 
being that middleman. Now, if we have a lender who assesses the risk, takes a look at the fact they're bankrupt, looks at their employment history, looks at their credit, looks at the whole package, what, you know, I don't know how much money they had in or if it was zero finance, they look at everything and if they say, we are able to offer this loan at 25% and these people over here say, yes, I'm good, then I don't see how that's a problem. Now, I think Sandy touched on it because the breakdown happens is salesmen will say anything to close a deal. And yeah, it's probably a, a part dirty car salesman, part them hearing what they want to hear. But typically, what we will say is when somebody doesn't qualify for a mortgage, we say, you know what you need to do to qualify for a mortgage would be this, this, and this. And they say, but I really need to get in the house right now. Okay, well, we've got these options. We get them in, but then you will have to reestablish your credit. You'll have to do this. And if you do all of these things, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, all of these things, you will be able to qualify here. And what they hear is, in a year, I will qualify. They don't, they miss the whole part that they have to do. How do we know they reestablished the credit? How do we know they saved up money? How, and if they were promised this reduction in uh, interest rates, this interest rate leaf, at least have it outlined in the contract because it wasn't. It wasn't outlined in the contract. So these people heard what they wanted to hear and they, it, it was rock and roll and they were done. Toast over. And do you think they had their sights set a little too high on the value of a car? I mean, I looked at the black book value of my 2007 Hyundai Tucson that runs, you know, it's in pristine condition other than some hail dents from the summer storm, and uh, it's worth about $8,8500. Now, you know, $21,000 car can get you a lot of car for, you know, a bankrupt couple. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, uh, yeah. I would agree with that. So they did touch on that a little bit in the story, and uh, they said it was the only car that the dealer was willing to make the offer on. Now, keep in mind, it was a two-year-old used car at the time, so they weren't trying to get a new car. Right. And sometimes dealers will pull this sort of chicanery to uh, move inventory that's stuck there, is that you know, they'll insist, you have to take this one, that's the only one I'm willing to make the deal on. Uh, might have also been that in order to go through the whole subprime loan process, they needed a loan of a certain size, uh, for the bank to bother with because they wouldn't have just bothered with something smaller. But, you know, like the we were talking about the reporting, we don't know, and they probably didn't, uh, go to the bank to try to get not a loan on their own and set it through the dealer, in which case they could have scaled it to whatever they wanted, you know, found a $5,000 used car that was more like five or six years old. So so this is my question. Do you think that somebody would, if, if they were sitting in that room and somebody said, look, this loan is going to cost you $25,000 in interest. Do you still want it? Do you think that if it, the nature of the disclosure was more, um, l less disclosure speak, less document, like, you know, I'm just going to pass a stack of documents across to you, do you think that it would have changed the outcome of this without knowing the couple, obviously? Do you think it would have changed the outcome of this particular transaction? It's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, you look at some people who have their sights set on something, like Jackson says, I want to be in a home or I want this particular car. It's really hard to get them out of that emotional state, right? No matter how you're going to look at it, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll say, oh, well, I'll be in a better situation in a year or two and this won't be so bad or I can put more down later. And I don't see how that's the dealership's responsibility. The dealership's in business to sell cars. They sell cars. 
So they find somebody that's willing to finance the car for this person. They've assessed the risk. They've looked at it. How is that a bad thing? And actually, this isn't the worst financing you can get out there. I mean, they offer title loans on cars. That's like 28% a month interest paid quarterly. Now, of course, you have to own the car already, but I mean, this isn't the this isn't the worst as far as it goes for auto financing. And okay, twenty five percent loan, you're bankrupt. You've proven that you can't pay your debt on time. That's a huge risk. Why do we assume that borrowing money in Canada is a right? And that's what really gets me fired up because I've seen this consumer behavior. I've seen people coming to me with just the I'm 19 and I don't have a job, but I expect to own a home. And so, final thoughts here, guys. Is um, is TD as the third? TD was really getting blasted, I think, in the uh, in social media. Anyways, are they off the hook here? As I, I think you guys have explained it pretty well, that uh, they're going to the car dealer. The finance is, is com- financing is coming through TD, which doesn't really they don't really talk to the client at all, other than send them their bill. Uh, is TD off the hook here? For the most part, in this case, I think so. Um, it is a little bit of a symptom of what's going on with these low interest rates. Like uh, I've been talking to some other people who are trying to fund businesses and uh, startup companies, and they're saying, you know, there's no funding there, or they're facing interest rates like eight, nine, ten, twenty percent uh, for a business loan at fairly conservative me- metrics, like one times cash flow or two times cash flow or something like that for a startup business that's actually somewhat profitable and growing and has promise and all this. But if you put your house up and get a mortgage, oh, you can get you know two and a half, three percent, as much money as you want. And so it's kind of part of the issue is the type of lending that's happening there. So you're um, saying so we should all finance our businesses with our uh, home equity. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying that's best, what's happening. Yeah, that's what's happening because of yeah. uh, the behaviors of the banks. And I'm not necessarily saying that's bad. The banks view that as, for whatever reason, much, much safer than an auto loan to someone who's bankrupt, and so that's how they price it, and that's what comes out. But right. um, And I, I agree with you totally. I agree with you totally, and that's why I think the government has uh, pulled back refinances to 80%. Is because people were doing using their houses as vending machines. Refinances up to 95%, and then the market jumps up 20%, and hey, they're just following right away, you know, refinancing the next mortgage. But getting on to the Twitter, uh, Noel says, I have to watch out for selective listening a lot and make sure clients really understand what they're getting into. I really like that phrase, selective listening, and I think that's what we were talking about before. Scott Dawson from BC says, clients should understand what they're signing. Only one to blame is themselves. If you don't understand a document, you shouldn't sign it, but how many of us actually just take a stack and go, "Mm," and oh, Uh, yeah, I agree. And Noel jumps back in and says, data or disclosure isn't the solution. They need insights into what implications of any decisions are for them. Yeah, that's an interesting point uh, because you can have these kinds of disclosures where instead of having a 25% interest rate, you can say it's going to cost you more than the car in interest in dollars, and you'd say that's going to be more relevant. And they said, oh, if someone had just told me that, I would never have gotten that loan. But then you actually do the experiment and you give the people that disclosure, and it only changes behavior a little bit because they're in that mood. They're like, I'm buying a car today. And you're like, it's going to cost you more than the car in interest. I'm buying a car today. I need a car. And then they still end up regretting it. It helps a little, but only so much. <laughs> Any last thoughts there, Sandy? Well, I think I mean I think in general when something like this happens and you get kind of the hue and cry from the general 
the people who like to hue and cry, then the government should do something. And it's just kind of what John said. What is the government really supposed to do in a situation like this? I mean, there's a cap on how much you're allowed, you know, the top line of, of interest you're allowed to charge for something. There are disclosure requirements. Um, and they're not, I mean, I would agree, I mean, you can't, I don't expect people to to be able to understand everything because people feel embarrassed to ask more questions. I think that's the real crux of the issue. They look at it and they say, I don't really understand that. And and my behavior is telling me because I'm going to buy a car today, as John says, I'm just going to buy this car anyway, so I'm not even going to ask the questions for all of those reasons. Um, so I don't think there's a solution. I think I think this will always happen in some form or another. Right. So moving on to our next topic, we were uh, maybe I'll let Sandy introduce this. Uh, Sorry, we're I just wanted about... to add one more thing, uh, just in case anyone else is in a kind of similar situation with this BC couple and is thinking of uh, auto loan and going, well, yeah, we're gonna also get stuck paying so much, but we need a car. Is look at renting a car. I looked up quotes for areas around BC. They didn't say exactly what. Uh, region they were in, and uh, it was only a little bit more than they were paying for this loan, and uh, to rent a car from a place like Rent-A-Rec or Avis or whatever, you can show up with cash. You don't need credit, so that's an option, especially if they don't need a car full-time every week of the month. If they only did it for a week or two uh, for certain trips, you know, one day a week or whatever, uh, that can really help. Makes a lot of sense. So, Sandy, go ahead. It's uh, We're talking... Uh, math, we're talking financial calculators. Uh, let us know what's on your mind here. Well, the reason, I mean, the reason I was excited to have John come on the podcast is because, I mean, there's an example right there. Well, I looked up what the rental rates were around, and um, he's very precise about what a, putting a dollar value on something. So there are things that you can't put a dollar value on. So one of the things, obviously, is we talk about retirement planning a lot. It's one of the things we like doing um, because we're money nerds. But um, you can't really put that precise of a dollar on it. So one of the things that I wanted John to talk about was the kind of user error problem when we talk about those kind of online calculators is that you can create an online calculator that will come up with any number that you want it to, but how you use those numbers and the assumptions that you move forward with then um, can be either helpful or really damaging. <laughs> so, John, take it away. <laughs> sure, yeah. Uh, using a retirement calculator can be pretty simple. Like... You're only talking about a couple of variables that really matter, and they're all fairly well understood in, in math sense. You know, you're talking exponential growth. Uh, so if you go and you plug it in and you make your plan, as it were, uh, then you go ahead and you see um, that you're just going to have this like perfect exponential growth sliding up, uh, where you've got, uh, you know, this is your plan. It's hey, you know, 25, 30 years from now, I'm going to have. $500,000, $750,000, and then using some other rule of thumb, that's all I need to retire, and I'm good. Uh, but, you know, maybe you're too aggressive in that. Maybe you're assuming an 8 or 9% uh, return on your uh, funds when that might not necessarily be conservative or what's really expected, or you might tug in 20% and be like, ha, 20% gets me there. All I need to do is get 20% return, and I'm done. And it's like, well, how do you actually make that happen? Yeah, uh, so I like to think of it as, uh, you know, you look at a couple scenarios and what's the best case, what's the worst case, and how is that going to affect uh, your plans? You know, if you hit right on what you expect most likely is going to happen, you do fine, but if you're a little bit worse, uh, then things can get, you know, worse. You need to save more, you need to cut your budget in retirement, you need to work longer, um, whatever factors it is that uh, 
change this. And it's not just a couple. It's like this whole cloud of probabilities. And it's uncertainty. And people really don't like uncertainty. Uh, it's, you know, just the way it is in the world. People don't like uncertainty. They're really uncomfortable with it. It's part of why people are so afraid of equities, uh, because the volatility and the uncertainty there really scares them. And something that I've tried to help people with uh, through you know, some of my writing, some of my face-to-face -face conversations is, you know, equities really should be a part of most people's portfolios because you need the predicted, expected growth that's going to come out of them, even though you have to deal with the volatility, uh, because the other ways that you can invest, like just say GICs, have other risks associated with them. They're just hidden by not being volatile and not being as uncertain, but uncertainty is a fact of life. So when you... When you plug in a, into a retirement calculator uh, and, and you know you're 25, 35 years old, how, how useful is that data? Like, um, you know, you're really, oh, I just have to die when I'm 75 and I'll, you know, <laughs> and, and I'll have enough money or, or like you said, I'll, I can just plug in an extra percent to, to, to get me there. Like, it so, seems so far down the road. Like, for me, if I'm going to retire when I'm 65, I've got 30 years to go. If I just keeps, you know, the most basic retirement calculator, well, you say, well, how much am I, how much am I starting with, and how much am I going to save per year? Well, it's not that simple. We all know that, right? Like, I'm going to save, hopefully, more in 20 years than I am today. Um, you know, and some years are going to be more than others. So it's not that straight line or that, that exponential growth curve. So, like, how are they useful for anyone that's, you know, further away than 10 years from retirement? Yeah, actually, that might be where they're most useful in my mind because all you need is something simple like that. You just need to get pointed in the right direction and start down that way because there's so much uncertainty between 30 and 65 that you're going to have to adjust your course. You're going to have to make changes to your savings uh, rate. You're going to have to make changes to your budget. You're going to go through life changes like having kids and changing jobs and moving across the country and deciding that organic food is the way to go and you know all these things that happen to you across your lifespan uh, they're going to happen to you and you don't know in advance which ones will and which direction they'll happen maybe you'll win the lottery maybe you'll go bankrupt um, and so you just get started in the right direction keep trying to go in the right direction you know, it's an iterative process you do the retirement calculator biz and you go oh I need to save 10, 12, 15% and then you go along, you go, oh, I'm doing really well. Maybe I can cut my savings back down to 8%, 10%, 12%. And then you go along for another couple of years, ooh, I need to ramp it up to 16-some percent. And as long as you're getting that in advance with enough time, you know, if you find out that you're a little bit behind what you had originally planned when you were 30, by the time you get to 45, you still got time to make that up. If you don't even start the retirement process till you're 55, 60, and you're planning to retire at kind of a typical Canadian 65, you're in trouble. Uh, now, as you get closer and closer, smaller factors start to matter more. Uh, you know, taxes and uh, uh, the way that you split your money up and, you know, start thinking about estate planning. That's when you need to go see someone like Sandy or yourself or another financial planner to go into more detail where, you know, this little online tool is going to be more uh, less useful for you because you need to take into account these other little factors that are kind of squished by the magnitude of your savings rate and your overall return. See, and the beauty to me, too, of having that sort of, that, I was going to say cone of silence, we know that's not what I mean, but the cone of probability is that, you know, when you're starting out, 
the best thing that you can tell somebody that's never really done any planning or, or kind of investing on their own or anything, the best thing to say is we don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we can make our best guesses and this is kind of what the range looks like, but knowing that that's sort of what you're looking for, this is the simple path that you need to be on, like John said. But then the beauty of getting closer and closer to retirement is that cone starts to draw closer, knowing that obviously if somebody is retiring in their kind of early 60s, let's say, it's possible that we're still looking at 30 or 40 years of market returns if they keep a portion of their portfolio still in equities. There's still quite an awful lot of variability that can happen, but you, you have more and more precise information that you can start to fill in. And obviously I get excited about it because I like precise information, but it becomes so much, I mean, when you say iterative, I mean, every single time that you update and you, you kind of track your progress and then you see what the new possibilities are, that's very exciting. I think it's a very fun process. <laughs> so what kind of simulations can individuals do, like, kind of on their own? Is there, uh, like, you know, different online tools they can use? I like how you, how you said, John, how you want to have, like, a best, uh, you know, a best case, uh, you know, expected case and a worst case scenario. You know, what, what, can, what can people, everyday people do to uh, kind of plug in their own scenarios? Well, one of the easiest ones to do is just go look for some of the calculators around online. Uh, I'm personally not a huge fan of those for other reasons, uh, because you can't see the calculations, you can't see how it plays out year by year. Often you just enter a number and it's like, 30 years from now, here's where you are. And you're like, well, how did that play out year by year by year, and what should I be looking up for? Like, if you can see how it plays out year by year in the expected, and then five years in, you say, oh, this is not turning out how my calculator said, and now I know that something is required in terms of action, uh, then you can go ahead and do that. Uh, so I like spreadsheets for that because you can see every year or every row and you can play with the variables and you can see the calculations and see if they made a mistake because unfortunately there are some calculators with mistakes. Uh, the retirement ones I found are actually pretty good. It's some of the other calculators around online that find mistakes in. Although Michael James did find one in the uh, Globe and Nails calculator still years after he pointed it out to them hasn't been fixed. <laughs> Yeah, and people have found that too with uh, some of the bank calculators, more on the mortgage side. I think there one was using like American amortization or a different schedule for it, and um, so again, kind of dangerous to use if you're, you know, really counting on that outcome. Yeah, or if you're not like if you're like I, I for all that I use spreadsheets all the time, I consider myself math curious. <laughs> I would like to be a really fast math thinker. I'd love to see the outcome of a calculator and look at it right away. Like, I'm sure, I mean, it seems to me, John, it looks like something you could do. Like, I'm sure Michael James just looks at it and goes, oh, well, that's wrong because of X, Y, and Z. And when I look at it, I really have to spend time. I mean, I am very skeptical now of the way math it interacts with our assumptions, but um, I still have to take a long time to look at results and suss out if there's going to be a problem with them or not. I've got a question here. Like, do Does the average Canadian save for retirement right now? Right now, like at age 34, you mean? Or right now, well, what do you mean? Yeah, like, is the average Canadian saving for retirement? Do well, they have money put away? Well, the headlines say that 37% fewer Canadians are saving for retirement right now, if we can believe the statistics that newspapers pass around. <laughs> well, the banks pass them to the newspapers, so... Oh, yeah, so <laughs> let's, let's, let's talk about maybe the younger generation, because from my experience, in dealing primarily with first-time homebuyers and looking at their full financial portfolio, 
they're borrowing 5% from mom and dad to get into a house and they don't have a, a month's worth of savings in the bank. Like, and I'm not even exaggerating it. It's pretty much like that. I see maybe out of 20 mortgages, one or two will have RSPs and that's it. Like, are people actually saving? Are people actually using these calculators and figuring out a way to plan their retirement? And if they're not, is there a better way that we can be communicating them to them about the importance of doing that? Certainly some people are saving, but uh, I think like, uh, you know, the round of uh, surveys will go around this time of year, RSP season and that sort of thing. And uh, I, guess, I guess what a lot of the studies are suggesting is that Canadians are directing any of their extra cash flow or what you would call savings towards uh, debt repayment, whether that's line of credit or car loan or extra mortgage payments, or credit card or whatever. And uh, they're choosing to forego their RSP contribution in favor of uh, repaying debt this year. That's, I guess, that's that's the the trend, I guess, for 2014. So I am not a statistician, and when I read, when I told, like, when I told my husband what we were going to talk about today, he said, "Oh, they can make up statistics to talk about anything. Like anybody can prove their point about anything." Well, 72 percent of the statistics are made up on the spot. <laughs> I have never heard that before. <laughs> Hashtag fact. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, whenever I read that, the first thought that I have, I mean a headline like that, the first thought that I have is, says, says who? I mean, obviously, I mean, statistics and data gathering and filtering and controlling for the people who are answering, that's all, I mean, it's an actual science. But when I hear things like that, especially coming from the bank, I always wonder who they asked. John, do you have any, I mean, you're a scientist, right? <laughs> Might be the same kind, but you're a scientist. Do you have any idea, can you, can you illuminate me? <laughs> well, uh, my stats teacher back in, uh, at Western had a great saying that I love, uh, making sense is more important than making numbers. So you can create some very impressive looking stats, you know, with so-called precision down to the third decimal place, but it doesn't actually mean anything in the real world and nothing that you can actually change your behavior on or change your decision-making on. Uh, so some stats just aren't useful, but they just keep coming out over and over and over. And um, you know, Sometimes it's just noise. Uh, that's what we call in the science world noise. Um, it's not something that we call signal, which is something you can act on, something that's real. It's just fluctuations that happen all the time in the background. If you just keep measuring something over and over and over, it's going to fluctuate from the reading to the, to the next reading. And you expect that, but you know, it's how much of a fluctuation isn't something that you start to worry about. Uh, that's always a question that's out there. I mean, for me, I look at, I always look at who commissioned the survey. I mean, the, and it's typically around this time of year, it's, it's the banks. And so what, what are they... What do they want to get out? I mean, every time they commission a survey and then they send it to all the newspapers because they want the newspaper to be talking about them and writing their name. Well, so now that they're writing their name, what do they want? To, you know, what do they want to say? Well, people aren't saving for retirement. Well, maybe. Well, here and then here's some tips on how you can. And that's how all their all their surveys uh, they start with the problem: we're not saving enough, or we're spending too much. And then they offer the tips, and the tips invariably say come and meet with an advisor and we'll get an RSP loan for you or... Uh, <laughs> we'll set you up. You know, yeah, we'll come set you up. Come buy an RSP. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, I took a poll. I took a poll on the Twitter and I threw out there. I said, "Do people actually save money, or do Canadians just spend everything they make or more?" And uh, Bigger Jana Rick says, uh, "All his clients do. They're all saving for re- retirement." Uh, Colleen from Twitter says, "She certainly doesn't spend more than she makes. That's crazy talk. Debt makes her antsy." Uh, Tyler J, however, jumps in and says, "Money." Is that the stuff I used to pay rent, bill, taxes, and tuition, but never get to see? So, yeah, we're we're we've got a financial planner who's telling us telling us that his clients uh, do save money. One guy who says expenses it's expensive to live, and yeah, so we're, we're talking all over. about surveys and the source. Uh, you know, when you're talking <laughs> about picking a sample that's representative of what you want to ask. Uh, if you want to see our Canadian young Canadians as a whole across the country saving, mm, maybe, uh, and then you ask a financial planner, are your clients saving? Well, yes, they're the <laughs> clients of a financial planner. They're going to be the ones. All of them are saving. Every yes. one of them. It's <laughs> yeah. a nice, it's uh, a nice segue too, John. What we were going to talk about here with uh, financial advisors, and there's one one study that the, uh, a lot of uh, financial advisors or those in the industry like to quote, and that's. Uh, the one that came out last year on uh, those who have a financial advisor save more, build, or have more assets than those who don't, uh, kind of going along to what you were saying. With of course they're gonna uh, want to tout that. Um, so we looked at a Reddit thread, and for those that aren't familiar with Reddit, it's uh, I, I guess you'd call it a social media site, or a, a, I don't know what you want to call it exactly, but. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of individual uh, kind of groups that gather there, and and it's kind of I guess it steers toward the younger demographic, but it's uh, you know there are a lot of smart people there, and you get a lot of kind of snarky answers there. I guess uh, if you post something that you shouldn't, or <laughs> uh, or so. Anyways, this uh, a financial advisor went on Reddit and he posted a question. I'm a financial advisor, and I just want to throw this out there. Why is there so much hate for financial advisors and people in in my industry here? And about 150 comments later, um, I guess we found out, didn't we, Sandy? <laughs> we found out. <laughs> that was when John, when you sent that to me, I just got I lost. I could not read every single comment. I found I don't even know what to say. I I still don't know what to say. I read every comment and I. I'm I'm the worst person to talk about this because <laughs> I'm just overwhelmed with so many. I want to say all the things. And I guess you could we could preface by saying that uh, most of the people who participate in that group, I, I guess you could probably classify as uh, index investors or passive investors who think who can do it on their own and don't need the advice or so-called advice that they're going to get from a financial planner who's going to um, you know put them into the their own products that they sell. Which typically are more expensive than you could get in a in an index fund or, or an ETF. Um, I saw you weighed in on there, John, and uh, I guess what what was what was the advisor hoping to kind of glean from this information or that question? Uh, it's hard to see into the mind of someone like that. Like he might have just been hoping to convince everyone that no, no, financial advisors are really important and come use my services or something. He might have been trying to drum up business. You never really know, uh, but. I, I was commenting in there fairly early on before it just degraded into a flame roar. But uh, I was saying, look, there, there's real value to financial planners, to financial consultants, to uh, all these different titles that people give themselves that 
work out to much the same thing as to someone that helps me with my finances because financing uh, finances can be confusing. Uh, there can be a lot of bad behaviors and people can need help. And so I pointed out, look, the, the things that financial advisors do really well is they help people create long-term plans and sort out the factors that are important to them and help them fix their behaviors to save more, to stay invested for the long term and not uh, market time. And the part where they add the least value is picking investments. Yet, financial advisors almost exclusively tout their ability to pick investments and that's almost entirely what the meetings, pardon me, meetings focus on. And it's, I mean, it's sexy. That's what people want is they want investment performance, but that's where they add the least value and where the mutual funds have the hidden commissions and the high MERs, the management expense ratios. And he just didn't get it. He, like, he started off saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I help my clients so much. I help them with their behaviors, and I help them market time. And everyone's like, you can hear like a record scratch in your head when you read that. It was like, what? You help them market time? That's like, you can't do that. The studies show that that's not an effective way to manage money. It's not a thing that adds value. People should not be paying you for that. It was his big thing, and that's kind of where the thread just degraded. And that's always been the issue, isn't it? It's separating the advice from the product sales and, and where, you know, uh, again, going back to the financial industry or the mutual fund industry is they say, well, yes, you pay 2%, but you get advice on top of that where, you know, if you go do it on your own in a passive portfolio, yes, you can do it at, you know, a fraction of the cost, but you're on your own, you're not getting any advice. And so I guess we can kind of go back and say, and, and what a lot of those Redditors were saying is that, uh, you know, they're not getting advice, they're getting a sales pitch. Do you know, and when we talk about the, the advice is in there in the MER and in the embedded commission, I understand. I mean, if you don't really look at it too closely, it makes sense. I mean, the person needs to be paid, and that's just one way of getting paid. I mean, I'm, obviously, I'm. <laughs> anyways, they need to get paid. Um, but, but when we talk about MERs of 2.53, that's not uncommon, not at all. And then we talk about something kind of, you know, like a dimensional funds that's 1.53. So does that mean that the person that is in a 2.53% MER fund, um, I was going to name a couple, but I probably should refrain from doing that. Are they getting 1% worth more advice? In my experience, absolutely not. Definitely not. So that doesn't, that doesn't scale. Like that, a higher trailing commission for you know, a, a managed portfolio, like a fund of funds, doesn't equate into more valuable advice than somebody who's getting... Not even we're not even talking indexing, but if they're just getting a couple of one and a half percent MER funds, it doesn't. That does not equate for me. I just don't understand how you can make an argument about embedded commissions and not address that piece of it. And what's a reasonable yeah. cost for uh, for advice? I guess you know you look at some of the asset-based uh, wealth managers or or uh, or you know fee fee-only planners or advice planners, and they'll charge one percent of assets. And if I guess if you look at you strip out you know the costs of the you know the 2.53 is one percent is that what's worth the advice I guess or what people would be willing to pay for the advice and I'll just touch on the um, uh, I think BMO introduced that last year which was their uh, it was kind of a DIY help uh, for or, or DIY uh, investor help which was an online their online broker I can't remember what it's called anybody help me out here. 
And they were charging one. No, it wasn't investor line. It was just for DIY investors, but it was to get a little bit of advice on a trade or on whatever. And they would get it online and it would be through, or they could call in as well. And I think they only paid 1%. And uh, so even, you know, the most steadfast DIY investors were saying, you know, oh, that's way too much. So I guess, you know, I'm asking what is advice worth or what are we worth or what are we willing to pay? See, that's two different things to me. So, again, let's go back to the fact that we conflate investment advice with financial planning, which is kind of a lot of other things too, right? And it depends on the type of client and what what kind of planning is actually of value to them. So it's hard. So I always go to my old standby. It depends. I know somebody in Colorado who has a, a, like an assets under management. So obviously he, he invests people's money for them and he does the financial planning as well. He charges a flat fee because in his opinion, somebody with you know a million dollars doesn't really need that much more investing help. It's just the units really than somebody who has $500,000. And I, there's obviously I like that, I like the idea. I'm never gonna invest other people's money, so it's really kind of a moot point for me. But one percent, I think, is just the. I think I think we all use it because it's the industry standard. It's the number that kind of gets thrown around. Yeah, I don't know it's that kind it's of a carryover from that commission model with uh, mutual funds, where the advisors would get about one percent of the uh, MER coming their way as their commission, and so. Mm-hmm kind of stuck with that 1% of assets, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's just kind of from historical reasons, and uh, I'm not sure about Jackson, but the other three of us provide financial advice for money, and uh, I believe, I'm not 100% sure about your fee structure, Sandy, but I saw Rob's just the other day, so it's fresh in my mind, and you know, he charges a flat rate. I charge by the hour. Um, I think you do as well, right? It's, I do both. Oh, you do both. Okay, yeah, so it, it kind of makes sense to me. It seems to make sense to Rob, and well, what, uh, what strikes me about the 1%, and I'll go back to that, I, I think I referenced that article in, in uh, one of my posts, which is uh, Preet's article on the, on the financial advisors in, in, or how to choose a financial advisor, and he's talking about fee-only and asset-based and whatever, and he said, well, you know, the asset-based model where they charge you 1% of your, uh, you know, your investable <coughs> assets per year, uh, make it makes a lot more you know sense for advisors to go under that model rather than you know individual plans for you know every time you have to set one up it, you, you know they say he said you're doing all your heavy lifting in the initial kind of meetings you get them all set up and then now you're collecting this one percent every year and that can really add up and so they talked about like the scalability of that model and you know for me I just think that's that that's not um, that's still not helping consumers or it doesn't feel like there's a lot of value there for you know for the clients yeah. although to be fair uh, and talk out the other side of my mouth on uh, charging a percentage uh, fee for advice is that it, it works for clients because it's not as shocking uh, yeah. you know if you say to someone yeah I'll help you draw up a financial plan and uh, you know, get your budget on track or whatever, and it's going to cost you thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars for my time, and you know, you're going to have to commit a number of hours to sit down with me. That can be a shocker because, partly because it's new and people aren't used to having to pay for that. I mean, I personally think that that can be quite valuable for people, very well worth it for people rather than just paying it hidden in a one percent. But you know, there's reasons for it too. 
because we're Canadian and we're complacent with it, and that's how it's always been. So we're not going to change. Yeah, and also just behaviorally, it's easy. It's easy to slide into that at one percent than to yeah. face an upfront. Well, and two, like if you're not going to actually do anything, if you're not going to to plan, like if you just want a piece of paper that says, if you put, you know. $200 a month into your RSPs for the next 30 years. This is how much you'll have, and hopefully that's going to be enough for you. And some people live their lives like that, and I told, I mean, I power to them. I don't, I, and, and sometimes it works out for them, and a lot of the times it works out because they just adjust their expectations and whatever. I'm, whatever. Sorry. But, um, Noelle, but if you, um, oh, sorry. But, well, if, you, if you're not going to, if you're not going to actually participate in the process and get value out of it, why on earth would you pay somebody like me or someone like you or someone like Rob? It doesn't make any sense to drop any money on something that you're not actually going to follow through with. Yeah. But I'm going to, I'm going to jump into Noel on Twitter says BMO service is called advice line or advice, advice direct, direct. Advice, advice direct and PW capital, PWL capital also has a mm -hmm. DIY service. There's a lot of, Short letters there uh, to help yourself. build an X. Yeah, there I uh, to help build an index portfolio. And Noel also says bang on comments from the holy potato regarding the real value of financial planners. Love it. <laughs> Could always count on you, Noel. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Well, guys, any, uh, yeah, any final thoughts here on uh, like? I don't know. I, I I look at the you know we started a fee only planning business and and it's unorthodox and and uh, people aren't used to that model. But you know it, maybe the this industry needs a bit of disruption like that and not like we're going to disrupt you know a million people. But uh, the handful of clients that we that we will uh, affect, you know, I, I I hope we can do it in a positive way and and uh, and I hope the industry does take notice and and uh, well I got. You know, I got a great question. Uh, sorry to cut you off, Rob, but uh, before we leave, I want to throw this one out there because Rick, Big Ricky T says a thousand dollars for advice is equivalent to a hundred thousand portfolio paying a one percent trail. So what of those? What about those people just getting started? That's a very good question. But so, what's the value of what's the value of the other advice that they're getting? So the people that have less than usually account minimums. I mean, we're using a hundred thousand dollar kind of standard rule of thumb, right? Account minimums normally for asset managers are around $250,000. And this this Redditor guy had made that kind of claim, like, oh, well, I take anybody under $250,000. There's that huge underserved part of the market that doesn't necessarily need someone to tell them, you know, you should invest in X, Y, and Z. Um, they need somebody to tell them, how do I balance all of my goals so that someday I do have $250,000 to invest, and then I can make the decision whether I'm going to pay somebody 1% or if I'm going to pay for a flat fee for some other, like, or go to PWL or something like that. But those people still need to figure out what they're doing and where the best bang is for every dollar that comes into their house. That's not just investment planning. That's figuring out your life and how money is intertwined with it, she said. Well, and going back to, I think, what we started with uh, at the beginning of the show was, um, you know, what is that... Is that you know? It's just figuring out your your goals at that stage, right? It, it's not uh, like the investment products themselves are the last should be the last of your concerns at that stage. It's you know figuring out your goals and and how you're going to get through you know the next five ten years because so much changes. Like those young people getting started, you get married, you get a you know house, kids, RESP, all figuring out all that stuff. It's all happening there, and that's probably the 
investment products themselves is the last thing you should be worrying about. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dan Bordelotti says, right? It's not your funds. Your funds are not your problem. No. <laughs> Good. John, so anything I, left? Yeah, anything sure, left I in the tank? I, I can I can talk for hours and hours, so you just should throw it out. Randomly to me. Well, there we go. Thirty uh, seconds. So Lewis Rettier wanted to show you. This is a calculator I made myself, but it's uh, something that um, I think is also important to include that doesn't often get included when people are talking about retirement planning and that sort of thing. And it's uh, looking at non-smooth issues. So you might look at your retirement budget and you say every year I'm going to spend, you know, forty-five thousand dollars, and you might work that out really rigorously and track all your receipts for a year to find out what you're spending on groceries, on clothing, on travel, on transportation, etc. Uh, but one thing people often forget is what I've highlighted in this first cell here, which is uh, that things come up that aren't in your regular every year budget that you might need to account for. So uh, I built my tool with this what I call five-year spending bonus amount, but it's just something to keep in mind that uh, there are going to be irregular big expenses uh, that might hit you, either big medical bills, big home repair bills, uh, you might need to replace your car, as we were talking about uh, with the other couple there, uh, that you might not think of because they don't appear in your regular every average year budget when you're doing your retirement planning. You might, uh, the other one is, uh, your, uh, you might buy a car for your bankrupt kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one is uh, your own personal inflation rate versus the CPI inflation rate because uh, if you have a defined benefit pension plan or if you have CPP or OAS, these are uh, indexed to inflation. So that means that the amount of money that you get out of these types of benefits is going to be increasing with the inflation rate every year so that you're keeping pace uh, over the course of many years and decades and not falling too far behind in the cost of living. But the cost of living, this CPI inflation, is just uh, average across the country for a big basket of goods that Stats Canada de determines, and it might not reflect your own personal basket of goods. If you're retired and you're not buying uh, consumer uh, durables like TVs and computers, you're not buying new cars uh, as often, you're not buying clothes as often, and most of your money is going towards electricity, uh, fuel for your car to get around, air travel, and food, and these things are going up in price much faster than the average, uh, your own personal spending budget could be increasing uh, quite a bit faster than your benefits, and this can actually be a fairly big risk. Like if it's only 1% or 2% difference, that can actually be a bigger impact on your ability to retire and keep your uh, standard of life than uh, one or two percent change in your investment returns. That's fantastic. Can I we, like uh, that spreadsheet. You've got links to those, John? Uh, I will put it similar? up on the Twitter with the uh, Because Money hashtag if you just awesome. give me a minute here. Nice. And then I will steal that off the hashtag and upload it to the Because Money website. Nice. <laughs> Excellent, guys. <laughs> Well, we'll have to get you back and give us some more calculators, John. Oh, I got tons of calculators. Uh, <laughs> you know, we we can always talk about other things like uh, framing discussions. Uh, how we kind of get caught up in what's measurable uh, because you know, measuring things is important, uh, and what's easily measurable and easily talked about, which is not necessarily the most important way uh, to manage or think about something or make a decision. 
Uh, one I like is uh, a personal bugbear of mine, rather, is uh, I drive a Prius. It's a hybrid car. There was a lot of angst a number of years ago about whether hybrid cars would be worth it. Uh, that really seems to have died down the last couple of years. Uh, but people were talking about the payoff period. So it would be, well, you buy a hybrid, it's more expensive than a comparable car. You know, Prius is close to a Matrix, not exactly the same, but close to a Toyota Matrix. They're both Toyota cars, approximately the same size, give you the same utility, but a Prius is $6,000 more than a Matrix. And you go, it takes you six years of gas savings from a more efficient hybrid to get to that payoff point. And then that would be the meme that would go around. People would say, oh, the payoff period's horrible, you've got to wait six whole years. And then you go, well, no, think about it. Six years, you're going to have this car for much longer or you're going to sell it to someone who's going to have it much longer. So if you have the car for 12 years, that means you save $6,000 over the first six years and it pays itself back. And then you save another $6,000 over the next six years. Like, this is a large amount of savings. And cab companies figured this out pretty quick. Uh, they found that, you know, they're driving in the worst conditions, city driving almost constantly. They're not putting, you know, 250,000 kilometers on their car. They're putting, like, a million kilometers on their cars. And some cab companies were finding that a Prius paid for itself entirely. Not just the extra premium, but if you gave them a car for free, like a Crown Victoria old used cop car for free, they would still buy a new Prius because they saved so much on gas. Wow. It was just... But because the framing of the discussion had been around rather how much money can I save, it was how long does this take to pay it off, and that's really not quite the most useful metric. And then you get trapped on the other side with um, some of the let's just call them General Motors cars, uh, where they had, uh, at the time, some pretty terrible hybrids out there. They were just start-stop hybrids. Uh, they would add only a small premium, but they really wouldn't save you anything in gas, and there were legitimate reliability concerns. And in that case, yeah, the payoff period was still about six years, but then you're only saving, like, $500 over six years. So then your concerns about new technology and whatnot were a little more justified because... It's new technology, this risk, and it's only that little bit of uh, savings. So how long have you had your car? Uh, I've had it for coming up on four years now. Uh, close to that payoff point. Getting close, <laughs> yeah. It's actually extended a little bit because of uh, my driving has changed since I moved into Toronto, and now I take the subway almost all the time, uh, whereas when I was in London, I was driving a lot more, like a lot more. <laughs> Well, well, gives us some food for thought for next time, right? Yeah, yeah. Love it. Uh, so similarly with that, we were you know, talking about the 1%. We just kind of got stuck into that frame uh, framework of paying for advice as a percentage of assets. But yeah. you know, we're not working on necessarily commission models, so maybe that's not the best way to frame the discussion. Yeah. Pay more up front, and then the payoff comes down the road, right? Good. Yeah. Love it. All right, guys. Well, Have a great night. We are done. Thanks, John. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all later. Goodbye. Goodbye. Right. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a good night. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Because Money is a labor of love and involves no ads or other sponsorship, be sure to click the like or subscribe button where you downloaded this from, as we'll help other listeners find the podcast and raise our profile, which in turn makes it easier to book guests. Please visit becausemoney.ca for show notes and related links.